We are studying the book of Romans. A simple outline for the book of Romans is two sections, chapters 1 through 11, righteousness from God, and chapters 12 through 16, righteousness in practice. You'll see a distinct change in tone in chapter 12 when we arrive there. So I just present that to you just to help orient you as to where we are in the book of Romans. What have we learned so far in the book of Romans about salvation for Jews and Gentiles? So let's just, any of you, feel free to chime in to answer. What have you learned so far in the book of Romans about the salvation of Jews and Gentiles? It's all from God, absolutely. It's the same, okay. It's a gift of faith, it's not earned, right? What else? Not necessarily from your forefathers. We'll talk about that today, that's true and not true at the same time, yeah. How about at the beginning of Romans when it talks about the sin condition? What about Jews and Gentiles in their sin condition? Are Jews in a better place, a better standing sin condition wise? No, no, uh-uh. Why would Paul include a section in Romans to explain Israel and the purposes of God? Let me answer that question for us with a quote from one commentator who wrote, many of Paul's Jewish contemporaries rejected his gospel and the inferences that some of them might draw from this fact, that is, his gospel denies God's faithfulness to Israel. It was a practice of the Apostle Paul. When he, on his mission journeys, missionary journeys, where would he go preach the gospel first? He would go to the synagogues. He would go to the Jewish synagogues. And oftentimes, he would preach in the Jewish synagogues until when? They kicked him out and threatened to kill him. <laughs> and then, what would Paul do after he would leave the Jewish synagogue? He would go preach to the Gentiles. That's right. So, many Israelites, national Israelites, many Jews were rejecting the gospel. So some might think that his gospel denies God's faithfulness to Israel and does away with her special place in the purposes of God and therefore implies that God's word has failed. That might be what some would conclude. Well, if, if all the Jews are rejecting the gospel and Jesus is the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, and all of them are rejecting it, perhaps God's plans have failed since so many Jews are rejecting it. What we'll see as chapters 9 through 11 unfold is that it becomes clear that Paul is counteracting the tendency on the part of Gentile believers to look down on Jews. That's also part of the, the reasoning here. So twofold purpose, so that Paul's readers will understand God's plans and purposes and promises have not failed, even though Many Jews are rejecting the gospel, and Gentile believers must not look down on their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters. 
Got the, got the picture in your mind? Let's look a little closer at chapters 9 through 11, for it's a section all unto itself. In the first part of chapter 9, we'll be looking at this morning, we see Paul's concern for Israel and her privileges. Then we'll see Israel and God's election. We'll see Jewish responsibility for failure to embrace the gospel. And then Paul will contemplate the question if God has rejected Israel. And what's the conclusion that Paul is going to draw by the time we get to the end of chapter 11? What conclusion will he arrive at concerning Israel and the promises of God? Yes and no. Kind of, sort of. We're going to talk about that. Kind of, sort of. The conclusion that Paul will draw by the time we get to the end of chapter 11 is that God's purposes for Israel are fulfilled by grafting the Gentiles into the people of God. God's purposes for Israel are fulfilled by grafting in the Gentiles into the people of God. And and the the analogy that Paul uses that we're to think of here is like a, a tree, right? You have a tree, an olive tree, and it has been hewn and cut and cut, and all the unfruitful branches of the tree have been cut and pared down and pared down and pared down and pared down and now this olive tree looks bare it looks dead and then what God does is he takes a new branch called the Gentiles and engrafts it into the olive tree and it begins to bear fruit same tree new group grafted in that's what Paul will conclude. To help him do that, he will lay out for us the doctrine of election. Let's talk about that this morning. What are the two views concerning the doctrine of election that are affirmed by essentially all Orthodox Christians, both Calvinists and Arminians? Yeah, very good, Michelle. You got ding, 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 right answer. Rob, buy her something nice tomorrow, all right? She's done so well today in Sunday school. Get her a new bike. I bet you know a guy. (laughs) Sell one of the bikes and buy her something nice. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's all Orthodox Christians in all major evangelical denominations affirm the doctrine of election. They all do it. Those who are Calvinists, those who are not Calvinists, and those who are Arminians. The difference is the way that we understand the doctrine of election. Is election unconditional? Or is election conditional? That's the question. The question is not, does the Bible teach the doctrine of election? All Orthodox evangelical Christians affirm that the Bible teaches the doctrine of election. You can't read the Bible and conclude that election is unbiblical. It's in the Bible. The word election is used. You have to wrestle then with the teaching of Scripture regarding the doctrine of election. So is the doctrine of election, is God's election of his people unconditional or is it conditional? And to that we turn to the scripture. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why do you do? Why do you have that, Paul? His Jewish kinsmen are rejecting the gospel. Verse 3, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off. One word in the Greek, accursed and cut off. Anathema is the word in Greek. Accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word anathema often translates a Hebrew word, cherem, is the word in Hebrew, cherem. And that word often gets translated in English as devoted to destruction. Cherem is the opposite of holy. Israel is holy unto the Lord in the Old Testament. They are set apart and dedicated to God for a holy purpose. As the Israelites go into the promised land and they have conquests in the land of Canaan, God tells them, Cherem the Canaanites, devote them to destruction. Set them apart. God has set them apart. Just as God has set apart Israel for a holy purpose, He has set apart Israel, or set apart the Canaanite tribal groups for another purpose. And that purpose is destruction. And Paul picks that up and he says, I wish that I could be cut off on account of my kinsmen, my fellow Jews. We hear an echo here of Moses' prayer in Exodus 32:32, where Moses is interceding for Israel, and Moses prays, "But now, if you will forgive their sins, but if not, what does Moses say? Please blot me out of your book that you have written. Cut me off," Moses is saying. It's, it's, it's a way of communicating deep 
heartfelt anguish and prayer and intercession for those who need the gospel. That's what Paul is doing here. He desires their salvation. In their present state of rejecting the gospel, what Paul wished for himself on their behalf was actually true of Israel. Paul wished that he could be cut off for their account because they had been cut off from Christ. We see this similar teaching in Galatians 5 when the Judaizers are convincing people to accept circumcision as a prerequisite for gospel faith and salvation. And Paul says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. It's a play on words, right? Paul saying, you are cut off from Christ, you who so desire to be cutting on folks. Because you're making circumcision a requirement of salvation, you're cut off from Christ. We're to see that there in the text and to think about that. And this was true of them because they have added to the gospel. And by adding to the gospel, they've rejected the gospel. You can't add anything to the gospel. What Paul is saying here in Romans is that because the Jews have rejected Jesus and he wishes he could be cut off for them, they are cut off from Christ. They are accursed from Christ. Will that lead Paul then to conclude that there are no privileges for being Jewish? Far from it. Look at verse 4. They are Israelites, and to, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Israel, let's just look at each one of these real quick. They all find their roots in the Old Testament. They're there in your outline in um, page 2. Eight special privileges for being an Israelite. Paul outlines them. Number one, privilege number one, theirs is the adoption. Israel was considered to be God's son. Exodus chapter 4, the Lord sends Moses to Egypt and tells him, tell Pharaoh to let Israel go. For Israel is my firstborn son, and if Pharaoh doesn't let my son go, I'm going to kill all the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt. Hosea 11, verse 1, when, Ho when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called, what? My son. So Israel's considered God's son. Also the glory. Think about the glory of God revealed to Israel that when Moses received the law, when he received the Ten Commandments, the glory of God descended upon Mount Sinai. When Moses went into the tabernacle to meet with God, the glory of God descended upon them. As Israel was camped in the wilderness, the glory of God was there by day as a cloud and by night as a pillar of fire. And so Paul's saying here, that is a benefit. They have seen God's glory. Third privilege, the covenants. The Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 17, the 
Mosaic Covenant, Exodus 20 through 24, and the Davidic Covenant, 2 Samuel 7. The next privilege, the law. Look at Deuteronomy 4.8. What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? The law was a benefit to Israel. It was a blessing to Israel. Theirs is the worship. The Lord had given them all the sacrificial and Levitical system. Theirs were the promises, likely a reference to all the promises attached to the covenants. And theirs are the patriarchs, likely a reference because to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for as we see the chapters unfold, they're mentioned here. And then, as he considers all these privileges, the best privilege that they have is that the Messiah comes from their bloodline. Now, I want you to see here the fulfillment of all of these blessings in Christ. This is the reason, this is the whole reason that Paul mentions this. Israel is God's son who he called out of Egypt, but who else did God call out of Egypt? Jesus. We see that in Matthew 2. Out of Egypt I called my son. Well, why did God do that? Well, to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. It's a, it's a reference to Hosea 11. Isn't that interesting? Hosea 11, 1 Israel is my son who I called out of Egypt was a prophecy about Christ. That's what Matthew says. Jesus, just as God revealed himself in the wilderness at Sinai, at the tabernacle, in the temple, Jesus is described in John 1 as the word became flesh, and literally the Greek is he tabernacled among us, John chapter 1. Jesus is referred to as the son of David and the son of Abraham. We see that in the genealogy, don't we? He is literally from their bloodline, Abraham and David. Not only that, he is the covenantal son of David and Abraham. He's the son of promise in those covenants. He's the one who fulfills the righteous requirements of the law. The law was a blessing. Christ came. He fulfills the law. Jesus is the one who fulfills the worship. He's the sacrificial lamb and the high priest. And Jesus confirms all the promises given to the patriarchs. We see that in Romans 15. So there's great privilege here, right? What's Paul saying? All of the blessings that God has given to Israel have been types and shadows of Christ who is to come. That's my whole point in mentioning all this. God has been revealing to them in the law, in the covenants, in the promises, in the worship, in the priesthood, in the sacrificial lamb. Everything has been pointing to Christ. Is their rejection, then, God's failure? Look with me at verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Why does Paul here not say, it is not as though the promises of God has failed? 
What's that? You're right, she says, because they haven't. Not a single one of God's promises have failed, right? Why? All his promises have been fulfilled. How? In Christ. That's right. So Paul is not asking, he's not considering if God's promises have failed. He's already answered that question. The question now that must be wrestled with is, has God's word failed? Or has the gospel failed? Paul answers that by saying that God unconditionally elected Israel instead of Israel. And I know what you're thinking here, right? Just like Mo in the Three Stooges, are you giving me the double talk? No, I'm not giving you the double talk. God has unconditionally elected Israel instead of Israel. Look at verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to who? To Israel. Isn't that interesting? Not all who belong to Israel are Israel. There is internal membership in Israel and external membership in Israel. All who are internally members of Israel are external members of Israel. But not all who are external members of Israel are internal members of Israel. That makes sense? Travis says it this way. This is really was really helpful for me. Imagine a circle. And this circle is the covenant. Written inside the circle is the covenant. Everyone inside the circle is in the covenant. And then inside this circle is a smaller circle, and we would write the elect. Those who are members of the covenant, those who are members in Israel, are larger, that's a larger group of people than those who are elect. Those who are Israel are more than those who are Israel. There is an Israel and a true Israel. There is a bloodline of Israel, and then there is a spiritual line of Israel. That's what Paul is teaching here. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And Paul's already said this, so we should be, not be surprised by this. He says in Romans 2, not everyone who was circumcised was circumcised. Isn't that interesting? He's already said that in Romans 2. Not everyone who received the sign of circumcision was circumcised. Well, what does that mean? You have to redo their circumcision or take back their circumcision? No, impossible. You can't do that. Not all Israel are Israel. Not all who are circumcised are circumcised. God has unconditionally elected Israel instead of Israel. Next, he gives another example that God has unconditionally elected Isaac instead of Ishmael. Look with me again at verse 7. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Saul comes from the book of Genesis. Paul's quoting from the book of Genesis. And what's the story with Isaac and Ishmael? Who was Ishmael? Well, when God gave a promise to Isaac and Sarah that they would have a son, they were old. And Sarah says, I'm old. It's not possible for me to get pregnant. Take my handmaiden, Hagar, and you go have intercourse with her, and she will bear a son on my behalf. And so Abraham did. And the offspring was Ishmael. Then God comes and reaffirms his promise to Abraham and to Sarah. And Abraham says, oh, that Ishmael would be the son, would be the promised son. And God says, no, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. I will make of the son of the slave woman a nation. I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman because he's your offspring. What's God saying? I'm going to bless Ishmael because he's your son, but that's not the son of promise. He's a member of your family, but he is not the one promised to come. So there were external blessings for being a son of Abraham. How many sons, let me ask you this question, how many sons did Abraham have? When you read Genesis 22, it's the story of Isaac being, you know, the story of Abraham taking Isaac up to the mountain to be sacrificed. And what does the Lord tell Abraham about Isaac? What does he call Isaac? Huh? Your only son. So how many sons did Abraham have? Many sons. Many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. Thank you. Please stop now. When we read in Genesis 25, not only do we know, when we get to Genesis 25, not only do we know that Ishmael is Abraham's son and Isaac is Abraham's son, when we get to Genesis 25, Abraham has all kinds of sons. He has lots of sons, but he only has one son. Only one son was the son of promise. His only son, the son whom he loved. His only begotten son. What is Jesus called of God? We don't use it very much anymore. It's King James English, but it's really good theology. Jesus is the only begotten son of God. Wait a minute, I thought Israel was his son. Jesus is absolutely unique in his relationship to the Father, just like Isaac is absolutely unique in his relationship to Abraham. He's the son of promise, and so too Jesus. Let's look at another example Paul gives. Look at verse 10. This time, God's unconditional election of Jacob instead of Esau. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Okay, look, so Rebekah's going to have twins. 
They have one mother and one father. There's no difference between these two sons. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. See that in verse 11? Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Wow! The election, was it conditional upon one's obedience or unconditional, the election? What does Paul say in verse 11? Conditional or unconditional? It's as plain as the nose on your face, isn't it? Some of you kind of mumbled it. Let me ask you again. Look at verse 11. Was the election of Jacob and Esau conditional or unconditional? Not conditional whatsoever. It was absolutely unconditional, wasn't it? Verse 12, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Verse 13 is a quote from Malachi chapter 1. And I preached through Malachi, love Malachi, because Malachi chapter 1, Israel is asking the question, is wrestling with the question, God must hate us. God hates us because Jerusalem lies in ruins. And then God says, oh, really? You think I hate you? Well, Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. The land that Esau established was a land called Edom. And the inhabitants were called Edomites. And in Malachi chapter 1, God uses Edom as an example. And he teaches Israel, the descendants of Jacob, if I didn't love you, you would be left destitute like Edom. I would have left you alone. But because I do love you, I have preserved you. You see, the doctrine of unconditional election is so important because it reaffirms to us God's love. It is never to be used for us in a sense of pride. What does Ephesians say? In love, he predestined us to adoption. The doctrine of unconditional election is so important. We need it because we need to understand that God loves us simply because he loves us. He doesn't love us because we're so lovable. He doesn't love us because we're going to love him first. He didn't decide to start loving us based upon the condition of us loving him in return. No, Scripture doesn't teach that. Paul's not teaching that. Scripture teaches time and time again, God loved us first. And he elects us unconditionally, not based upon any of our obedience unto him. Just a little aside here. Is it likely that Isaac and Rebekah withheld from Esau the covenant sign of circumcision? 
Well, wait a minute. They knew before Jacob and Esau were born that, that Jacob was the promised son and not Esau. So why would they give Esau a sign of the covenant when he wasn't the covenant son? He's still a child of the covenant with all the blessings thereof. You see, Abraham, Romans 4, received circumcision as a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of the righteousness that he had in Christ. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. And then he receives the sign of circumcision, Genesis 17. And then what does he do? He goes and circumcises all his sons to teach what? If you put your faith in God's promises, this sign will be a blessing to you. If you reject these promises, this sign will be a sign of judgment to you. Isn't that what Paul is saying in Galatians? Those of you who would receive circumcision, you are cut off from Christ. Your sign of circumcision is not a blessing to you, a sign of blessing to you. It is a sign of judgment to you. And the same is true for baptism no matter when you receive it. If after you receive baptism, you reject Christ, that sign of baptism is not a sign of blessing. It's a sign of judgment. If you think about the Red Sea, the Red Sea was a baptism. We know that it was called a baptism of Moses. Two groups of people were baptized in the Red Sea. God parted the waters, and Israel passed through, and they were baptized in the Red Sea and did not get a drop of water on them. And then the Egyptians, they were baptized in the Red Sea too, and they got soaked, didn't they? They drowned. They perished. God unconditionally elects us in his grace and in his mercy. Well, is God unjust then? That's the question that must be asked. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Who is God to do this? This is unfair. Paul answers, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is a quote from Exodus 33, Moses has asked, Lord, reveal to me your glory. And God tells Moses, well, no man can look on me and live, but what I'll do, Moses, is I'll set you in the cleft of the rock, I'll cover you with my hand, and then I will pass by in front of you, and you will be able to look upon the train of my glory, is what he says. And then the Lord tells Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. What's Paul saying here? When God wants to reveal himself to someone, like he did to Moses, he'll do it out of his mercy and out of his compassion. 
we are unable to make God reveal himself to us. We can no more get God to reveal his glory to us like Moses, God. God must condescend down to us in his grace and mercy. Come down to us and in his mercy and compassion reveal himself to us. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. There you go. This is the reason for the doctrine of unconditional election, because when God reveals himself to us, it is a mercy of God, and it is his grace to reveal himself to us. Well, what about the other group? Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you. Okay, that's great. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Wait a minute. What happened to Pharaoh? Well, God chose Pharaoh to bring judgment on Pharaoh so that all the nations would know that God righteously judges those who are sinful. God made a spectacle of Pharaoh didn't he? And of the Egyptians. He say, well, can you prove that from scripture? Yeah. Read Judges chapter 2. What happens when the spies go into Jericho and they meet with Rahab the harlot and they're in her house? And what does Rahab the harlot say? Hey, we heard about what the Lord did to the Egyptians and how he judged them and what he did to Pharaoh and how they drowned in the Red Sea. And when we heard that you were headed our way, our hearts melted within us and we were afraid. Did it work? Oh, yeah. It worked. Absolutely. And God has every right to do this, Paul says in verse 18. He has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. We can't read into the providence of God. We don't know the divine counsel. We don't know who the elect are and who are not the elect. Even within the church, we don't know. But God knows, and he will be merciful and compassionate on whomever he wills. So, Here's the question then, if we reject God, are we exempt of guilt? We've got two minutes here to wrestle with this question. If you reject God, are you exempt from guilt because, hey, you weren't part of the elect? Victor, the answer is no, correct. Okay, why? God's revealed himself. When man rejects God, he does so freely in accordance with the nature that he has, which is sinful. What else? Any other thoughts? 
the catechism says that not only do we have the sin nature in us, that's our state of sin and misery, but from that sin nature proceed our actual transgressions. So the sin that we have is, it's not just the condition that we're born with. From that condition flows the sins that we actually do. And we're guilty of them. We did them. We committed them and are in need of God's grace. Wonderful discussion this morning. Great job, all of you. Such good answers. Thank you for the discussion. Let's pray.